Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 475 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. This week has been a major milestone in the life of this podcast. Thanks to all of you wonderful listeners, we've reached over 2 million downloads. So I want to say a big thank you for being such a wonderful community. I love bringing this podcast to you and I hope you find inspiration and information you know, from it. Also, a big thank you to Alison Tate, who was with this podcast for a huge part of the journey. And even though she's now moved over to her own fabulous podcast called Your Kids Next Read, I want to acknowledge that she has been such a big part of this this particular podcast for so long. And I definitely want to share celebrating this milestone with her. And of course, with you guys, without whom this wouldn't be possible. Now, I hope you've had a good week. I've certainly had a busy one. On the weekend, the program for the Sydney Writers Festival was released. So I spent much of it poring over all of the sessions. And, you know, I love a good writers festival. And the Sydney Writers Festival is definitely one of my favourites in its location, the vibe, um, generally the program. I love the lineup this year. There are so many. Australian Writer Centre graduates and countless podcast guests who feature on the program. I mean, there is um, Nat Amore, who is one of our graduates. She's done courses at the Australian Writer Centre and is now one of the most successful middle grade authors around. There's our recent interviewee, Al Campbell, who wrote the fantastic book, The Keepers, and she is in conversation with Annabelle Crabb. So that's very exciting. Frida Chu is also um, an Australian Writers' Centre graduate, and she is on the program as well. She did writing picture books. She's a fantastic writer and illustrator, and I'm so excited for her. Victoria McKinley, oh, you know, she's fantastic. And she's also a picture book author who's done writing picture books at the Australian Writers' Centre and wasn't uh, was recently featured on the Today Show. So I'm excited for her as well. We got such a great response to Danuka McKenzie, who was on a few episodes ago, who is a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre. She's done courses here. And, of course, we talked to her about her book, The Torrent. And she is also on the program um, at the Sydney Writers' Festival. Fiona Murphy, who wrote her memoir, The Shape of Sound. And we also interviewed her recently. And she's a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre. And she is not only featured on the program, um, you know, like as a regular author, she is a guest curator. So big, big things, big goals are being kicked by our graduates. Wonderful YA author Astrid Schult, whose book League of Liars is really great. And um, you'll hear from her on this podcast soon, but she's also on the program. So is Kate Simpson, who's a fantastic picture book author and graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre. That's just to name a few. As you can see, I could not be more excited about the fact that there are so many people from the Australian Writers' Centre community on at the festival, and I can't wait to see them all there and I can't wait to see our listener community there as well so big things happening um, over at the Sydney Writers Festival you can check out their program at swf.org.au 
Now, I mentioned last week that I was heading to Melbourne and I'm, I'm now back in Sydney after a whirlwind trip. I was there to go, so I can tell you now, I was there to go to the opening night of Hamilton in Melbourne and the evening was just about as incredible as I could have hoped for. Not only just a next level performance, but also all of the events associated with it. It was like being in a James Bond movie. Anyway, big thanks to our podcast producer, Ra, for inviting me to this unforgettable experience. Of course, if you've been living on another planet, I'm talking about Hamilton the musical. And it's no secret, I love this musical so much. If you're not familiar with it, it was created by Lin-Manuel Miranda and is the story of Alexander Hamilton, who was America's first treasurer, believe it or not, which I realise does not seem like a likely subject for a musical, but his life was pretty dramatic and he had a huge impact on the building of that nation. And he was not only the architect of the financial system, he founded the Bank of New York, uh, the US postal system, the US Coast Guard, and so much more. I do think it's a work of genius. And I think it's because there are so many connections to writing. It stemmed from the musical stemmed from Lin-Manuel Miranda reading a book by Ron Chernow. Um, And that's where he found out about Hamilton. And there's so many references to Hamilton as a wonderful writer. You know, they talk about his skill with a quill. They talk about the the, the show talks about, not talks about, (laughs) illustrates the number of essays that he wrote that led to the independence of America. He talks about how he wrote his way out of poverty into, you know, success or into a new life. And it's just an incredible story. And the way the words are used in this music musical is like like no other musical ever but I know I'm fangirling I'm pretty excited about it if you are in Melbourne and you have a chance to go and see Hamilton make sure you do and of course it was also great to see some members of the AWC community there so big hi to all of you it's so great to catch up on the night Now, I want to move on to talk about something this week that isn't really discussed that often. Well, it is discussed, but in too broad a sense. Okay, I'm talking about author bios. Now, I am not talking about the author bio you might have on your website or on social media. I'm talking about the bio that you might write when you are submitting your manuscript to a publisher because it's a discussion that's been coming up in our Novel Writing Essentials program recently on how to write a bio when pitching your manuscript. Now, I know that many people often hate to write their own bio because it's hard to write about yourself and it's hard to know what to put in it. Now, it's funny because you're a writer, but for some reason, we don't like to write about ourselves. However, it is an important skill to have and really who is the best person to write about your bio than you? You can, of course, send it to somebody or ask someone to read it so that they can help you hone it and refine it and all of that. Now, as I said, this advice, just to be clear, is particularly for people who are writing a bio for a publisher or agent, because what you would write for your website or your back cover blurb you know, it can be something different. Too often people think they just have one bio and they just cut and paste it. No, you should be tailoring your bio to whatever it is that you're using it for, right? So when you're pitching your manuscript to an agent or publisher, your bio needs to be relevant and it needs to be professional. It's a bit like applying for a job. 
So Pamela Freeman, one of our popular presenters and, of course, our director of creative writing, says, well, gives this advice. But She says, bios should be no more than 150 words. And you should put in anything which is relevant, relevant is the key word, to your book. So, for example, if you're writing about fashion, what's your background in fashion? Or, you know, whatever else might be a major theme in your book. In your book. Don't say sort of twee things like, it's always been my dream to have a novel published. And don't necessarily talk about your childhood unless that's where you first developed your passion for fashion or whatever. Now, do mention if you've done any relevant courses. And again, keyword relevant. Now, particularly any courses that involve workshopping a novel. So that might be like our Novel Writing Essentials course or our Write Your Novel program, which you can do a six-month version or a 12-month version because publishers tell us that they like to see that you've taken the work seriously and they know you'll be okay about getting feedback right, about workshopping, because you've kind of had some practice and you've toughened up. So you might say something like, this novel was first developed through the Novel Writing Essentials course, or the Write Your Novel program at the Australian Writers' Centre. So as I said, the thing to keep in mind is that this is a professional introduction of you to the publisher or agent. So don't bore them with pages of irrelevant information. I have read bios or you know submissions to publishers where the bio goes on for three pages about every single influence that this person has had from their English teacher to their uncle and whatever in their life in the world of writing. No, you don't need that whole thing in your bio when you are introducing yourself to your agent or publisher. The bio is there to briefly explain who you are, how and why you wrote the book and its main themes, right? And that's it. Keep it short, sharp and professional. All right, let's move on to our competition this week. This is so cool. We have three copies of The Plant Hunter by T.L. Mogford. That's T.L. Mogford, and the book is The Plant Hunter. Right. 1867, Harry Compton is as far from a plant hunter as one could imagine, a salesman plucked from the obscurity of the nursery growing fields to become the face that sold a thousand plants. But one small act of kindness sees him inherit a precious gift, a specimen of a fabled tree last heard of in the travels of Marco Polo and a map. Seizing his chance for fame and fortune, Harry sets out to make his mark, but where there is wealth, there is corruption, and soon Harry is fleeing England, rounding the Cape of Good Hope, and sailing up the Yangtze alongside a young widow, both in pursuit of the plant that could transform both their lives forever. Well, you could win one of three copies in our competition. Entries close on the 4th of April, so go to writercentre.com.au slash win to find out how you can win. Just follow the instructions. It's really easy to enter. And uh, that's writercenter.com.au slash win. And of course, remember, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, you can still go to that URL because there'll be some other fantastic book there for you to win. Now, everyone, are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you're ready for the word of the week because I think this one's really cool. 
Emmatropia. E M M E tropia. Emmatropia. Do you know what it is? Emmatropia is a condition of the eye. And if you have it, you're extremely lucky because it means that you have naturally clear vision. So someone with emmatropia is not nearsighted or farsighted and doesn't have astigmatism. So I definitely do not have emmatropia. It's a bit like Goldilocks and the three bears. An emmatropic eye is not too short, not too long, but just right. If you wanted to be very clever, you could use it metaphorically in the sense of, I don't know, like 2020 vision. So you could say something like, she assessed the situation with emmatropic clarity. There you go, emmatropia. And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I'm so thrilled to talk to Patrick Gale. Now, Patrick Gale is based in Cornwall in England, and his latest book is Mother's Boy. His first novel was published in 1985, and he's clearly a novelist with longevity because I think this is his 20th book. He's also a screenwriter, and I I just thoroughly enjoyed talking to Patrick about his latest novel and his writing process. Let's have a listen to Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us today, Patrick. It's a treat, Valerie. I am so thrilled to be speaking to you about your latest book, Mother's Boy. There's so many things I want to ask you (laughs) because you've had a long career and you've done, you know, really interesting things. But let's just start with this book. For readers who haven't got a copy for themselves yet, can you tell us what it's about? Yes, it's based very loosely on the life story of a great Cornish poet, Charles Causley. A lot of people, when I mention him, say, oh, I've never heard of him. So I always add, he's the poet who wrote Timothy Winters, which is a poem lots of people have to learn when they're in school. And it's about him and his mother, and it takes them through the years just before the First World War, right through till after the Second World War. So it's it's quite an epic, I guess. So you're obviously really into Charles Causley because you're the <laughs> patron of the Charles Causley Trust. And what so why are you so into Charles Causley? And but more importantly, why did you want to write a book about him? Okay. Well I'm I'm very into Charles Causley because he is the most wonderful poet um, and he's not well enough known so writing a novel about him partly I just thought was a great way of spreading the word and I get very excited when people read the novel and immediately go to Google and Google Charles Causley poems because I know my my job is done then (laughs) but the main reason I wrote the book was having become slightly obsessed with Causley 
I then realized there was a great big unanswered question in the in his life story, which only fiction could answer. I, I've done this before, sometimes, especially with historical fiction, uh, it's a really good way of joining the dots between the known facts. There yeah. are things we'll never know for sure, but fiction can actually join them together. And in Causley's case, I wanted to know why the hell he chose to lead such a quiet life. Because he went away to war, he had this um, incredible adventure, I mean, horrific adventure, but it was an adventure. His eyes were, were opened, his horizons were widened. And then after the war, he chose to come back to this tiny little town where he'd grown up in Launceston, in the north of Cornwall, and live with his mother for all her life, which was a long life, and teach in a little tiny primary school where he had been a, a child. So you know, he actively chose to turn his back on the world in a way. Mm. So you refer to it as a novel. You refer to it as fiction and you say that it's loosely based on Charles Causley, but the character is Charles Causley. His mother is Laura, you know, you have stuck to the facts. So how much truth and how much fiction is in it? Well, it's, it, as I said, it honours the known facts, but there are lots of gaps. And of course, what it does, which a biography wouldn't do, not a good biography, is it gives us his thoughts and her thoughts. Mm. So it's a very intimate, internal kind of novel. Um, it, it's as much about the growth of his feelings as it is about the growth of his body. And similarly with Laura, it, it dares to imagine things in her head, which no biographer would. Mm. So, as you say, it does um, depict his thoughts because you write it from mainly Laura's point of view and also Charles's point of view in, yeah. like, third-person close focus. And, um, and you really capture what's going on in each of their heads. But what's interesting is that you have to write Charles as a five-year-old, as a, you know, as a kid going to school, as a teenager, as an older teenager. So you have actually captured his voice at very, very different ages. So I'm curious to know from the craft of writing point of view, how do you get into the head of a five-year-old? And, and, you know, <laughs> but not just a five-year-old, all the different, all the different yeah. ages and really capture that period in time? What did you do I, to I, do that? I, I even do a very short chapter of him as a baby. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I was helped in part by his poems because Charles wrote a lot of poems that conjure up different points in his childhood and his youth. So I, I didn't borrow the words, but I, I knew, I felt confident depicting certain scenes because he had depicted them himself. Um, when anybody ever asked him when he was an old man, Charles, you've had such an amazing life, why don't you write your memoirs? He always gave the same answer, which was, I don't need to because it's all in the poems. So mm -hmm. I took that as a, that was a red rag to my bull. I thought, right, Charles Causley, I'm going to take your poems to bits and find all the secrets in there. But also I made use of his diaries because he kept these tiny <sighs> secret diaries from when he was about 16 years old, 15 or 16, right mm. through until the point in the Second World War where he realised it was pretty much illegal to be writing mm. all this stuff down. <laughs> and they're not exciting diaries. They will never be published because they literally have things like what he ate for supper and what the latest film was that he saw. But from my point of view, they gave me a really strong sense of what sparked him, what he liked, what he didn't like, 
um, mm. the kind of people he was drawn to, and crucially, how his friendships worked, because the diaries depict these very, very important mm. close friendships he had when he was a young man, um, which, of course, were all shattered by the war. I mean, th this was a man who, I think, more than anything else, became a poet and a great war poet out of survivor's guilt, because mm. most of his friends were killed in the war, um, all his shipmates were killed. He, I think, felt very strongly he should have died and hadn't mm. died. He'd been spared and he'd been spared for a reason. So he goes to war as a playwright and he comes back mm. a poet, a poet, which is a very, that also really intrigued me. And I wanted to try to pinpoint the, the, the process by which he turns into a poet. Mm. Now, I have to admit that it wasn't till I got to the end that I realised that it was based on Charles Corsley, right? It did, it did. I think if you'd known in advance, you, you might have thought, oh, well, that's not for me because I've never heard of this man. Um, and I think this is an example of how fiction mm. can change your life because now you've read the novel, I hope, you mm. will at least Google one Charles Gosley poem. I yes. think um, I think sometimes if you're if you're told in advance that a novel is very very, and I'm ruining it now, of course, by giving this interview. No, if you're no, told no, in no. advance that a, a novel is <laughs> heavily based on 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 facts. Mm. You might think, oh well, then why re why 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 should I read it? Because I, I'd rather read the totally factual book. But as I said, I think fiction can blend the two in a really useful way and can bring the facts to life. Oh, yeah, Stop it's brilliantly done, brilliantly done. So I want to know, because obviously you are obsessed with Charles Causley and have, you know, been for some time. When did that start? And, but, and, and if you have been that way for a while, what, what was the trigger that made you finally go, I'm going to write a book about it? Okay, it was a process of, of accidents, really. I knew some of his poems when I was very little. Um, like a lot of English schoolboys, I read Timothy Winters uh, when I was about 11 or 10. That's a, a wonderful, very funny, very brutal poem about a neglected child, which lots of children, certainly in the UK, some at some point will read or have to learn by heart. And then I kind of forgot about him until I moved to Cornwall. And then in Cornwall, where I moved when I was 25, I kept meeting people who knew him. They kept saying, oh, you must come and meet Charles Causey because he was still alive then. Mm. And, and I never did, I never did. I was a bit shy. I was, he was a grand old man of letters. I was just starting out and it just never happened. And then out of the blue, uh, I was approached by the Charles Causey Trust. This is the charity that was set up after his death to preserve his memory and crucially preserve his last house. And they said, would you become a trustee? Because we think you have a lot to give the trust. And at that point, I, I said, well, this is a bit embarrassing because I don't really know his work that well. But OK. And then I put myself through a kind of Charles Causley. Um, <clears throat> sorry. I put myself through a sort of Charles Causley total immersion course and read everything I could find. And the more I read, the more I found out about his life. And that's when the novelist in me started thinking, this could make a really interesting novel. Um, really? not, ju not just because of him, but because of his mother. Because the, yeah. the thing about thing about Charles Causley, he was born into really unpromising circumstances. I mean, the family, they were they, they were laborers, his mother was a laundress, they had very little money, 
they um, certainly had very few books. This is not a bookish household. And yet he was a kind of genius. And I immediately thought, wow, what must it have been like for Laura, his mother, to have realized that this little boy that she was raising all on her own was actually pretty damn special um, mm. and different from all the other children. Would she have tried to make him more like the other boys? Would she have encouraged him? What, what went on there? And that, that really intrigued me. And that's not written down in any book. So mm. I had to write it for myself. I had to <laughs> imagine it for myself. So what was the gestation period then? You kind of start reading his his poems and then you go, this could make a good novel. Did you actually think about it for quite a while or did you get started straight away? No, no, I thought about it for quite a while. And really the trigger ultimately was that I kept having to go to Launceston, the, the town where he and Laura live, um, because that's where the trust meetings happened. And I would walk, I knew the town quite well, but I found I was walking around its little streets with his poems in my head now and seeing, <laughs> oh my God, that's where that poem set. And, and it, the town itself became like a character to me. It was coming to life mm. through his poetry. Um, and at that point I thought I've got this, this idea isn't going away. I'm going to have to write it. Wow. So just for listeners, especially Australian listeners, the town that Patrick is referring to, Launceston, uh, we have a, a, a town in Tasmania. But <laughs> in it's, Tassie, yeah. Yes, yeah. that's right. It's pronounced Launceston. So it's actually spelt the same way and no doubt it was named after that town. So take me back to you said that, you know, you were starting out when you moved to Cornwall when you first kind of heard of, um, of Charles. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? Oh, I never knew. I just sort of was one. I mean, when I... When I think back to my childhood, I was writing all the time. I was reading and writing. And the two processes almost were like a circle to me. They, they, I couldn't differentiate them. Um, and thank God, nobody encouraged me too much. I was <laughs> the youngest child, which helps. I think if you're the youngest of four, your mother is so exhausted. She's just happy you're quiet <laughs> and just leaves you to get on with it. Um, and really, for most of my childhood and my teenage years, I wanted to be a musician. That was the thing I was obsessed with. The writing just happened in the background. And then I became obsessed with becoming an actor. And I was doing that really seriously all through my time at university. And I applied for drama school and everything. Um, and even then I was thinking, well, I like writing, but it's just something I'll do in the background. I never thought it would be a job. And I was actually trying to become an actor and to get my equity card to join the Actors' Union when I wrote my first novel. And I wrote my first novel really just to amuse myself. <laughs> and it was only when an agent said, hang on, I think I could sell this, that I began to think, well, maybe I could do this alongside acting. Um, and actually the acting has never happened and the novel writing really took off. But um, I still, to this day, I mean, my word, I've done what, 17 novels now. Mm. I still can't quite believe I'm getting away with it. I feel as if I've, I've somehow avoided ever having a proper job. <laughs> so that <laughs> first novel, <laughs> that first novel, actually your first two novels were published in the same year. And um, is that, that's correct, right? Your first two novels were published day. on, on the, the same, same day. day. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and, but at that point, did you kind of think this is it, this is going to be my career or were you still thinking I'm going to do, it's a, it's a sideline. Uh, yeah, I was still thinking it would be a sideline because um, 
I didn't have that much self-belief in my ability as a writer. And I, I had, a, at least to start with, a pretty zany imagination. And my, my, my early novels, as anyone will know who digs them out, they're, they're pretty mad. Um, and I thought I was just too left field to interest the general reader. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if I try to map it out, I think what happened is gradually as I got more readers, I calmed down as a writer and I began to have more confidence in my my ability to hold an audience simply mm. by telling them a story. Um, and the funny thing is the acting hasn't gone away because of course now I record all my books as audio books. So I get to do all the voices mm-hmm. <laughs> and I... And, Increasingly, writers are expected to perform their work at book festivals to read yes. it aloud. Um, so I, I, I get my acting out of my system that way. All right. So talking about acting, sort of related to that, I was, you know, cruising around Netflix or some streaming service only like about a month ago, and I come across Man in an Orange Shirt, and I was floored. You know, absolutely loved it. And then I start Googling, okay, (laughs) and I see written by Patrick Gale and I'm, okay, so tell me about what made you decide to go into screenwriting? Well, I'd actually been doing it quite a long time, but just in a totally invisible way. Um, Quite often uh, producers need a script. They bought the rights to a book and they can't process, they can't, push the project on until they have a script and they look around often for a cheap writer who will just do them a script they can then show to the money man and I'd done that a few times I'd written scripts of films mm. which never got made I'd written scripts of tv shows which went no further so I I'd worked on my craft um and it, the real breakthrough came when the BBC were looking for a they knew they wanted some kind of drama series to mark the centenary, no, would it have been centenary? No, the 50 years that have passed since the partial decriminalization of homosexuality. So mm-hmm. in the 19, whenever, um, when it was still totally illegal to be gay. And they wanted to mark that with a drama. And they were talking, the, the head of drama at the BBC was talking to a producer and said, you know, what I'm really looking for is something that has the flavor of a Patrick Gale novel. And she didn't know that I wrote scripts or anything. And he went back to the office and reported this. And one of the women he worked with said, oh, I know Patrick Gale. We used to play bridge together. I can get in touch with him. So quite by chance, I then got this phone call saying, would you be interested in this project? Um, And I I said, absolutely, I would. Um, But the BBC has to know that the thing I write won't be a straightforward celebration saying it was awful then it's wonderful now it will be challenging and it will be as much about the women as about the men because Mm. that's that's how I'm how I'm wired Mm. and thank god they went for it because I I think it it, it took a long time to come to screen we went through lots of different Mm. versions of it but what you've got now those two films which relate to each other which have the same characters at different times of their lives um they're, they're deeply personal to me, and I think they do have the feeling still of a Patrick Gale novel. Oh, yes, in, yes. Especially in the way the women's feelings are quite foregrounded, um, mm. but also they're not straightforward. So the, the, they're very ambiguous characterizations. People don't okay. behave well. 
So I have to ask, you say you wrote scripts before, so it was not a foreign process to you, but those scripts that you wrote before, were they the screen adaptations of your books and therefore the story already existed or were they, you know, from scratch stories as this was? It was a total mixture. So I'd adapted a couple of my novels as films, neither of which sadly got made. Um, I'd also written several episodes for a a TV series, a drama series that wasn't my idea at all. I was just a writer for hire, um, but I had those under my belt as proof I could do it. And I also developed a couple of film and TV series ideas from scratch. So I'd, I'd sort of done the whole the whole gamut. Right. The nice, the nice thing is because that show did so well and it won an Emmy, um, I am now getting taken more seriously as a screenwriter. Um, mm. But it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, the it's still an uphill struggle in the UK to get suddenly an independent film financed. Mm. Um, so obviously like writing... America. Writing for the screen is very different and you've got to take into account so many different things. Um, What was the experience like and what do you prefer (laughs) compared to novels? It's funny. It's 50-50 because the thing I love about working on scripts is the process is really collaborative. You tend not to be working all on your own for years on end. You're Mm. constantly getting feedback. Because there's so much more money involved, the producers want to know what you're doing. So they want to see and talk to you all the time. Um, whereas when you work on a novel, you are very, very much alone. Mm. And it's quite a neurotic, <laughs> isolated process. The thing I love about writing a novel is I know now it will see the light of day. It will get published. I'm very mm. lucky in that position. Whereas with scripts, I put my heart and my soul into a project and often it then stalls, which mm. is hugely frustrating. So mm. I, I've spent, um, for instance, uh, a year, year and a half working on a BBC adaptation of Edith Wharton's masterpiece, The Age of Innocence, mm. only to have the BBC suddenly pull the plug. They just said, well, no, we love your scripts, but we're not really doing, we're not really doing this sort of drama <gasps> at the moment. And you mm. have no power. You mm. feel totally powerless. You've been paid but you have no power. Whereas mm. with a novel, as a novelist, I have, I still have some power, yes. which um, helps. So I like so, to go between the two, I guess. So with you have written 17 novels now, and so you're quite the veteran. So can you take <laughs> us through um, just a little bit of your, for a typical book? So you pick your idea of your typical uh-huh. um, ex- experience of writing a book. What period of time does it usually take you for that you know first draft or uh, where you get it to a stage that you're kind of you know more or less happy with it and and during that time are you 100% focused you know you wake up and tell me about your writing routine okay well I usually spend about a year avoiding writing (laughs) but I (laughs) so I know what I'm writing next I know so at the moment right now where I'm about to start promoting uh, Mother's Boy, I know exactly what my next novel is going to be. Um, And I'm already working on it in my head. I'm already working on it in my head, but I'm actively avoiding writing anything down. I'm not committing anything to paper yet. I'm letting it grow in my head. And I'm going to do lots of little research trips around that book. I know where it's set. I know the cities where it happens. I need to go to those places, walk the streets, listen to the accents and and it's a slow organic process 
And I think in about eight months time, I will be ready to start writing stuff down. Um, and even then I won't start writing the actual novel. I'll start doing a lot of research. I, I'm a great researcher. I like, I like to embed myself in the subject that the book is about and I will take lots and lots of notes and gradually the story will take shape. So with my next novel, it, it's a sequel of sorts to my novel, A Place Called Winter. So it's about real people. But in this case, it's about my grandmother and my mother and their marriages. And Harry Kane, the hero of A Place Called Winter, is the sort of man who makes the plot happen, which he did in 1953 by announcing that he was coming back to England from Canada. So I've got boxes of letters on the shelves behind me between my mother and my grandmother. And they're like a powder keg. Mm -hmm. And I know I will quite soon sit down and start rereading them all and making notes from them. And, the, and but, the story will grow organically. But once I begin actually to write, I'm pretty fast. The like actual, how fast? It'll take me about a year probably to write the novel, but I write, mm -hmm. I write in ink. I'm very old fashioned. I, I, um, <laughs> I know when I, when I say this to children, they look at me as if I was about to pluck a quill out of a passing goose. Um, I, I've just found over the years, writing in ink really suits me. It, 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 it it's organic, it's messy like gardening, and it, it lets the story grow at its own pace. And I seem to write in ink at roughly the speed that I think. So I don't think very fast. <laughs> um, I'm a very quick typist, but if I type creative work uh, in a weird sort of way, it becomes facile. I need, I need the pen like a kind of break on my brain to stop me going too fast. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about that you're okay. you write in ink so oh, I have to ask is it do you, do you do you have a chosen journal or book so it's all or do you write on loose leaf I actually want to know what it actually looks like and and I then can if show you, you if you like <laughs> I would love to see okay well hang on hang on I'll get get it off, off the shelf yes absolutely okay so um here we have this is mother's boy Three, three volumes, and they are completely illegible, I suspect, oh, wow. to most people. Um, and I, what I've, I've done for a long time now is I, I write the novel in one direction from one end of the book, and I take notes at the other end of the book. Oh, my um, goodness. And then I, I keep up that process until the two sides meet, <laughs> and then I put that aside and I pick up another notebook and carry on. So they, they tend to be hardback notebooks because I find these nice and portable. Mm. Um, and they often end up with all sorts of scraps of paper tapped into them and biscuit wrappers and heaven knows what else. But it, it works for me. It's a nice process. And I find, I always, when I'm talking to creative writing students, I always say, look, have a go at inky writing. Mm. Because if nothing else, if you sit down at your desk and you realize you're having a bad day, the story just isn't <laughs> coming. You can then spend an hour or two simply going over your notes and looking at your scribbles and it will remind you, it'll get you back to the good place where the writing was working well. Okay, so when you held that up to the screen and you, you casually said, oh, it's probably not very legible, the extraordinary thing was that it was extremely legible. It was also extremely neat and there were no <laughs> crossing outs. Oh, like, oh I showed you the... the wrong page. I showed you the wrong page. <laughs> I don't, I don't, believe me, there are, there are crossings out. Okay. 
that's a that's, that's a pretty pretty messy page. No, that's you not that, that messy. Uh, I'm sorry, because what you <laughs> what what I think is interesting is so tell me when you're writing it in ink, and then you you know might go and make a cup of tea and you think, oh, actually, does, that doesn't work. Do you do you actually just get rid of pages, or do you leave it all there and kind of at, at a later stage type it up and move it around? You see, this is crucial to the the to inky writing. You you cross it out when it's wrong, but you can still read it. So <laughs> if 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 you lose your way, if you find that a passage you're writing has gone wrong, because you can see the crossings out, you can go back and and find the point where you took the wrong turning. Do you remember? Well, maybe you weren't taught maths this way, but when I was at school, we were being taught maths. The teachers always said, "Show your workings." Because that way they could see where your calculations had gone wrong. You could pinpoint the moment. It's exactly the same with inky writing. It shows your workings so you can see the process. Fascinating. Okay. Sometimes you'll suddenly realise that bit you crossed out actually was right and you can Mm. bring it back in. And I do type it up myself because nobody else could cope with my handwriting. Um, I know you're very kind saying it's legible. It really, <laughs> really isn't. And I actually, I have a, several magnifying glasses on this desk because quite often I, I find a word I cannot read. It will be something crucial <laughs> and I can't read it and I have to sort of squint at it. So, um, All yeah. right, but, so- then I t- but then I type it up, I print it out, and then I do another draft in ink on top of the printout. So I'll, all the creative work is done <laughs> with a pen, a pen really. Oh, so you're doing revisions in ink on the printed version. Yes. Okay, so basically what you've said is you spend a year thinking about it, letting it brew, letting it, you know, um, swirl around in your brain. My question with that is that's a long time, a year, eight months, a year, whatever. Aren't you ever afraid you're going to forget the story that's developed in your head? No, I'm more afraid I'm going to get poor because (laughs) the (laughs) Yeah, if you're a slow writer, you don't get paid so often. I mean, the, yeah, this is the reason Val McDermott is so fantastically fast. A, she's, she's, she's a rich writer compared to me. I, 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 you learn after a while. You, your brain goes at a certain pace, and that's just the speed I am. So I do a novel about every three years, I mm. guess. Mm. Um, and in a funny sort of way, the publicity process, the touring around book festivals process, really suits me because that tends to come at just the point where I have a new novel to think about, but I'm not quite ready to write about it yet. So Mm. the hours I'm about to spend sitting on trains, traveling the length and breadth of the country will be really useful because I'll be Mm. staring out of the window and thinking about these new characters. Now, with this story, obviously, being loosely based on Charles Causley and his mother, there is there are actual events and facts that that you knew were going to happen or that knew had happened. But with a completely fictional novel where you don't have that, you don't have those guideposts, do you already know what's going to happen in your novels, before, you know, the key points, when you start or you're just one of those people who goes oh here's an idea and let's see where it goes I'm I'm a very male writer I suspect I I I I map things out oh quite quite obsessively but I don't stick to them I Mm -hmm. it's really just for my own sanity I have to have a road map I have to know roughly where I'm going how do you map it out and well I start with the characters always I just map I I grow the characters 
endless notes about the, who the main characters are, what, what they've been, where they went to school, what they like eating, what they like in bed, all this stuff, you know, random things. And my plots tend to grow out of those. So in fact, with this novel, although Charles and Laura were real people, I grew them in much the same way. I had to work out what made them tick. Mm. And I had to, um, and, and although I knew I had to honour the known facts, I knew as well there would be moments where I had to follow my, my instincts and make stuff up. So yeah. I've given, crucially, I've given Charles Causley a sex life, <laughs> which um, he went to great pains to appear to be a man who'd never had sex in his life. Um, <laughs> but I was determined to do that and, and, and give him a, a, a really kind of deep emotional story. I, I made most of that up, although I did have really good clues I found in mm. his letters and his archive. But ultimately, that 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 was you know, those were scenes which I was confecting. Mm-mm. But when you say you are quite a male writer and you map things out and you start mm. with those characters, okay, you might start mapping out your things with the characters but do you on a on an actual physical level do you map things out with index cards or excel spreadsheets or <laughs> inky flowcharts funny enough, this is this is this is one of the moments where i do use my computer creatively <gasps> i i quite often will do a, a kind of graph um with a, a column for each character and oh. the, the horizontal bars across the graph represent the passage of time. Yes, yes. And so what I do is I, I try to map out each character's story on that graph. And so I know whose point of view certain events in the story will be told from. And right. it's a very useful graphic way, literally graphic way, of mm. checking that the characters have enough material that they have enough to do, literally. Um, you may right. suddenly find when you do that, that there's a character who is purely there in order to enable one scene, at which point I think, well, okay, we ditch that character, we give that scene to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's a funny process and I, I very rarely stick to my plan. The plan is largely there as a, 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 a trick a way of tricking myself into keep, into getting on with it and to say, oh, it's fine. It's also a very useful scheme. If you, if you turn your story into a graph like that, it breaks it down into bite-sized chunks, which are less daunting. I mean, a novel is like a mountain to climb, yes. whereas an individual chapter is like a short story. So yes. you can kid yourself that all you're doing is writing a series of short stories that just happen to be about the same people. <laughs> so when you're doing your inky draft, tell me about your day, like your typical writing day, what time you wake up, whether you have a particular routine, you've got to have that particular coffee or whether you have a word count goal, that sort of thing. What time you knock off? Oh, God, I'm, I'm very vague, really. I mean, it's a working <laughs> farm. So we wake up early. We wake up at about 6.30 um, earlier in the summer and we have dogs and the dogs are very much a part of my working day. So I always start my writing day by going for a walk with the dogs. Mm. And that's, and I end the writing day by going for a walk with the dogs. And I think those, those dog walks are like my kind of decompression chamber into the novel and out of mm. the novel again. They're a way of me giving myself a chance to think through what I did the day before, what I want to do today and you know, get ready for it. 
I then spend hours and hours staring into space. Literally. <laughs> um, you can see over my over my shoulder, there's a big blue armchair in the corner. I sit in that armchair and if it's a nice day, I'll have the door open to the garden and I stare in, into space. And quite often I get nothing written until about the last hour of the day and suddenly ideas will come. It's just really frustrating. Other days, it's fantastic and I, I write loads. I do never ever do a word count. I think word counts are a terrible idea. And I'm horrified when I hear writers say, oh yeah, I try to do two and a half thousand words a day. I think that's just willy waving and it's of no help to anybody. And <laughs> frankly, I, I'd rather write one paragraph that I'm really proud of than five and a half pages, which are of dubious quality. You know, um, I don't think word counting really helps. <laughs> okay what is to you the most rewarding thing about writing novels oh it's definitely um losing myself i i i i myself disappear for me when i'm working i i love i get very excited by inhabiting these other people and trying other lives on for size mm. and one of my editing processes is remove, trying to remove traces of myself that might have crept in. So inevitably, <laughs> I'm everywhere because your your value judgments will seep out into your character's value judgments. But I I try to disappear, and I well, another way I do that is by trying to remove from the text anything I'm especially proud of. So if I think there's a bit of writing. If I do a bit of writing, some metaphor, and I think, oh, God, that's amazing. It has to go. What? because I Because I don't want to remind the reader they're reading. I want the oh, reader to be yeah. as inside the characters as I am. And if yes. if, if you do something that's, that's too clever or too beautiful, it mm. will, it'll, it'll remind them they're holding a book in their hands. I want them to forget they're holding a book in their hands. I want them oh. to, to forget to pick the children up from school because they're yes. so busy reading. So... Well, this book certainly does that. And for those people who discover Patrick Gale, have, have more recently discovered Patrick Gale, he is you are the sort of author that you then go back and read your back catalogue when you just oh, when you when that. you when you <laughs> finally discover you, you go, Oh my god, I'm gonna read everything this guy's ever written. So um let's finish on. We always finish on what are your top three writing tips for people who want to be in a position where you are one day? Well, the first one is read more. Mm. You know, it's it's astonishing how often I, I meet young people who are starting to write or they think they want to be a writer. And I always ask them, well, okay, what was the what was the last book you read that really blew your mind? And there's often this terrible pause, and then you realize, oh my God, all they're <laughs> doing is watching television, they're not reading. Um, I never went to writing school. I did an English mm. degree, and I'm so glad I did because I spent three years reading those huge triple-decker 19th century novels mm. and those taught me my craft and I'm still learning. I'm 60 this year. I am still learning how to write and I'm learning it by reading. So number one tip is read more. Mm -hmm. Number two tip is buy yourself a fountain pen and have <laughs> a go. Seriously, have a go at inky writing because you will, you will find it life-changing. Not, not least because it means you can turn off the computer and not be distracted by Google and emails and all that other stuff. You do not need to be looking at pictures of kittens in fancy dress. You should be getting on with your novel. Um, and I think third is 
to, to reassure people who think they've got writer's block, I, I don't think writer's block exists. I think usually when people think they've got writer's block, it's because they've started writing too quickly. They you mean writing a, too quickly? They've probably had a wonderful idea for a book and they've jumped in but with both feet first and they've started writing oh, it. Right. What yep. they should do is take a bit more time about going around the edge of their subject. So go away and read some books that relate to the subject. Um, maybe just to spend a week or two doing nothing but taking notes about who the characters are. Mm. Really, don't, don't push it. I think writer's block tends to happen because you're not yet ready to, to, write, to write the final text. Mm. You should still be thinking a way around it. I love that. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Patrick. Valerie, it's been a dream. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our eight-week course, Novel Writing Essentials, focuses on getting your manuscript off to the best possible start. Whether you've already started your opening chapters or just have a story ID, this course will help you shape the beginning of your novel through weekly lessons and workshopping in a supportive online environment. In doing so, you'll avoid potential mistakes down the track and meet the course goal of getting your first 20,000 words of your novel in the bag. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning online with your very own tutor and classmates providing direct feedback on your writing. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novel essentials. That's writercentercomau slash novel essentials. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Patrick Gale and I love his reference to inky writing. Now, what are you up to in the coming week? I mean, can you believe that a quarter of the year has already whizzed by? Honestly, I feel like I just had Christmas. This week, I've got a bunch of things to catch up on after being interstate last week, um, but I'm keen to tackle them. Now, if you want to connect with me, feel free to do so on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm also over at ValerieKoo.com if you want to check out what I do in my other life. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.